0: Find uh, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2. The best laid plans of mice and men. Exodus 2. It says, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian?" Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him uh, Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I normally don't read many poems. Some poems have a difficult cadence about them to try to read them publicly. And this would be one such poem. Uh, So just bear with me a moment. Little, cunning, cowering, timorous beast Oh, what a panic is in your breast. You need not start away so hasty with bickering prattle. I would be loath to run and chase you with murdering paddle. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes you startle at me, your poor earthbound companion and fellow mortal. I doubt not sometimes that you may steal what then, poor beast, you must live. An odd ear in 24 sheaves is a small request. I will get a blessing with what is left and never miss it. Your small house, too, in ruin. Its feeble walls, the winds are scattering, and nothing now to build a new one, of course, green foliage." and bleak December's winds ensuing, both bitter and piercing. You saw the fields laid bare and empty, and weary winter coming fast, and cozy here beneath the blast you thought to dwell, till crash the cruel plow passed out through your cell. That small heap of leaves and stubble has cost you many a weary nibble. Now you're turned out for all your trouble without house or holding to endure the winter's sleety dribble and our frost cold. But mouse, you're not alone and proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Still, you are blessed compared with me. The present only touches you, but oh, I backward cast my eye on prospects dreary, and forward, though I cannot see, I guess and fear." I seriously doubt anybody recognizes those words. They're the words to a poem from Robert Burns in a poem dated 1786 entitled To a Mouse. And it tells how he, while plowing a field, his spade uh, overturned and destroyed the mouse's nest. And so the poem is supposed to be an apology to the mouse. Well, the words of the poem form the basis of the title of John Stanback's 1937 novel entitled what? Of Mice." And men, exactly. Now, why do I mention that point? Because here we see mighty Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But you know what? Mighty Pharaoh is little more than a a mouse in God's hands. Here he thinks he's the powerful one. And he's nothing. He concocts a murderous plan against the Hebrews. He involves his people, the Egyptians, in that plot. But what Pharaoh and the Egyptians don't realize is that they're fighting against the sovereign God of the universe. God had chosen Abraham and Abraham's descendants to be his chosen people. And so the more that Pharaoh tries to tap them down and keep their population from growing... The more God blesses them, and the more God causes the Hebrews to grow in number. Pharaoh at first tried slavery. What was the result of that? It failed. So, what did he try next? The midwives, getting them to, if it's a baby boy, that the midwives would kill the baby boy and let the girls live. What happened? That failed. Well, he goes from slavery to infanticide. Now he's going to genocide. He commands his people to take all of the Hebrew young boys and do what with them? Cast them into the Nile. This too will fail. Folks, you've got to love the way God works. Sometimes he lets man give it his very best only to wipe out men's plans in an instant also you got to love something else at least the ladies in the room I think will appreciate this you know ladies back then would have had virtually no rights or no standing in society whatsoever but it's a series of ladies here who defeat Pharaoh initially did you notice that First there's the midwives and God uses the midwives to defeat Pharaoh's plans and God blesses them. And then it's Moses' mother who sees what a fine child Moses is and she makes a basket and covers it in tar so that it'll be waterproofed and she hides it among the reeds at the bank of the Nile. And then there's Pharaoh's daughter. And then there's also Moses' sister. And so God is taking persons who would have been considered weak and he is using them to utterly defeat mighty Pharaoh, one of the mightiest men alive at that period of time. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, consider your calling. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's an expert at doing that, isn't he? Taking the weak, the despised, and using them to do his work. I want you to see, first of all, tonight, Moses' humble beginnings. And what you'll want to do is underscore the first four verses here. Moses' humble beginnings. With simple understatement, Moses writes about his beginnings. In words not really intended to have a wow factor, In and of themselves, we're simply told in uneventful words that there is a man and a woman who marry and have a child, and it's a boy. But there's something wonderful about this boy. His mother senses it, no doubt. What is it about this boy that she notices? He's he's a very fine son. What is it that she notices? We're not told exactly. Some fine appearance probably but just like the hebrew midwives she upon seeing this son of hers engages in civil disobedience now two weeks ago we talked about civil disobedience what's civil disobedience do you remember Exactly, doing what's right in God's eyes. Uh, civil disobedience is when the earthly authorities say one thing, but believers say we've got to obey God rather than men. And what would be a case of that in the New Testament? Anybody remember in the Book of Acts? What's what's a case? Of civil disobedience. James and John. You know they've been up to the temple to pray. And going into the temple. Who did they see? They saw a crippled man. And he was healed. And it caused quite a stir. Well the authorities got a hold of John and Peter. And said you've got to quit preaching in this man's name. You've got to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said No. You know, you judge for yourselves whether it's right to obey you or to obey God, but as for us, we must obey God. At times, who knows, folks, maybe more in the future, Christians may be called upon to engage in some form of civil disobedience. We might see that day come. You know, again, the Bible says we're to obey earthly authorities. But if earthly authorities tell us that we've got to disobey God, we've got to obey God. I guess the real question is, do we have the courage to stand up for what is right should that day come? You know, it's been noted before that many of the world's dictators were able to get his people to do ruthless acts simply because the dictator promised to take care of them with worldly goods. That's a shame, isn't it? And yet there have been those voices that have said no. I don't know if you've ever read uh the cost of discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer anybody read that book okay who was dietrich bonhoeffer
1: he was a minister of the
0: word he was a minister and a theologian in germany during world war 2 during world war 2 he
1: was constantly working against the nazi government
0: exactly saving jews wherever he could doing
1: yeah. everything yeah.
0: against the government sure Now, by today's conservative evangelical standards, Dietrich Bonhoeffer probably wouldn't fall in line with us where we are theologically. He'd probably be more liberal than we are. And yet, he was a man of tremendous conviction. And he was a part, he was calling on the church to the the new church movement they were starting against Hitler, the confessional church. He was calling on the confessional church to rise up and be a part of a resistance movement against Hitler because he and some colleagues of his saw what Hitler was doing and how evil it was. Well, when he was just thirty-nine years old two weeks before the U.S. military came in and liberated the prison camp where Bonhoeffer was, uh, the Nazis came in and they killed him. 39 years old. And it was just one month before Germany surrendered. He was that close to seeing the end of World War II. But again, he was a a man of tremendous courage. Would you and I have the courage to do what he did? Would we have the courage to do what the Hebrew midwives did? Would we have the courage to do what Moses' mother did? I hope so. Now, because of the way in Egypt... Uh, it was a well-known craft to take the reeds there at the bank of the Nile and to strip the the reeds, the outside of them. They would make baskets and different types of things, bowls and baskets out of the reeds. And they would cover them in tar if they wanted it to be waterproof. Um, this was a well-known trade in Egypt. So... Moses' mother probably had gotten very good at that. Well, she makes this basket and uh, coats the inside with tar so it'll be waterproof. And she puts it there at the edge of the water. And the reeds along the bank of the Nile were known to grow as high as 16 feet. And they would grow in thick clusters. And so a basket made of that same material in the middle of a cluster would have been camouflaged. Nobody would have noticed it there. And so that's what her plan is. Now folks, one can't help but also think of another ark, right? Noah's ark. God saved Noah and his family by placing them in the ark. This is essentially an ark made for one little solitary baby boy. Now, verse 5 tells us about Pharaoh's daughter. Some think she was Hatshepsut, Complicated name. Hatshepsut. They put letters together that we in English don't even put together. Her husband would eventually be a Pharaoh just like her father currently was. He would be identified as Pharaoh Thutmose, Thutmose II. Now, this is all based on the date of the Exodus being early, the 1446 B.C. date, the traditional date. Now, if this is correct, if it was, we'll call her Mrs. Hat, short, okay? If it was Miss, Miss Hat, history knows something about her. She could not have children of her own. So for her to go down to the Nile River, and remember they believed that to the Nile River, there, what, what was over the Nile River in Egyptian belief? Different gods. They were a nation of 2,000 gods and idols, and some of those gods and idols would be gods over the Nile. And so here's a woman who goes down to the edge of the water to bathe and she can't have children of her own, if our timeline is correct, and yet here's a little baby boy in a basket. What's her thinking going to be? The gods of the Nile have seen my distress and have given me a son. That's probably what her thinking would have been. Now, yes, she knows it's a Hebrew boy. But she would have seen it as being more than just a Hebrew boy. The gods of the Nile have given me this child. But folks, don't miss what God is doing. Just like with Joseph sold into Egypt and put in prison and then elevated to prime minister of the land, here God goes again doing amazing things that only God can do. God is getting his man into Pharaoh's household. Just like God got Joseph into a leading position in Egypt. God is going to be doing this again, getting Moses right where God wants him to be in Pharaoh's household. Folks, you've got to just stand in amazement and awe at what Yahweh, God, the true and the living God of Israel, is doing here. He's getting Moses right where Moses will need to be for Israel's exodus. Now, yes, Moses almost messed it up, and I'll have more to say on that later. But again, God's getting him where he's going to need to be. It just goes to show us how God works. God could swoop down and conquer all the kingdoms of the earth in a second. And one of these days, that's pretty much what he's going to do. But in the redemptive story in the Bible, that's not how we see God working. God works to put His servants in the right places at the right times, and we see that all through the Bible. And in the supreme way of all, God does that in the incarnation, His Son, the Lord Jesus. I am not saying that God depends on us. God is Almighty God, but God chooses us. And if we're not faithful, God can raise up somebody else to be faithful. Amen? You've also got to love Moses' sister. We would assume this is Miriam unless there's other sisters that the Bible doesn't tell us about. If he did have others that we're not told about, it's because those sisters didn't factor into the biblical narrative. So sometimes the Bible leaves people out because they don't factor in. But, but I'm assuming this is Miriam. And you've got to love Miriam here. She's a good big sister, she's watching over baby brother day after day after day. Now, I'm assuming she would wade out in the water and probably give her baby brother maybe some, some water from time to time. We're not told that. It's just an assumption on my part. But there she is day after day watching over baby brother. You've also got to marvel at her wisdom and how she inserts herself in a wonderful way. When Moses is discovered, she approaches Pharaoh's daughter and says, should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? I mean, folks, you got to love that, don't you? She goes and gets Moses' mother. Moses' mother ends up nursing her own son, and guess what? She gets paid to do it. God is great. This is one of those stories in the Bible you read, and you just have to lean back in your chair and laugh. Then, when Moses is old enough, he goes to live in Pharaoh's household. In Pharaoh's household, he would have had the best of everything in Egypt, and plus, he would have gotten an Egyptian education. A good education at the time, a good education in the ways of the world, that is. What's God doing? God's preparing His servant. Folks, I bet that you can look back on your own life and see how God was preparing you for something. Maybe the career that God put you in, maybe some assignment that He had for you you can probably look back in your life and see how God was preparing you before you even knew God was doing it. I know I can. I can look back on my days in school. I loved English, all things related to English, grammar and literature. I loved history. And those are two disciplines that are used all the time in ministry in preparation and then God gave me a photographic memory now yes when I'm up in front of a crowd I have notes here but they're kind of just there God blessed me with a great memory so I can look back on my life and see how God was preparing me and I bet you can do the very same thing Secondly, I want you to see Moses' distinction beginning there in verse 11 going down through verse 22. If we were to stop reading at verse 10, you may assume that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's home and became an Egyptian in every way possible. That's what you would assume, right? If we were to stop reading at verse 10. But from the second half of the chapter, that's not what we see at all, is it? To some degree, Moses was much like who else in the Old Testament? Daniel. Daniel and Daniel's three buddies later on. Why do I say Moses was was like them? Because here was Daniel and his three buddies. They had the best of everything in Babylon. And they were given a Babylonian education. But what did Daniel and his three friends do? They purposed in their hearts that they were going to remain true and strong in their Hebrew faith. Even though they lived in a pagan land, they were going to be true to God. Moses does the same thing. We're told about that in the New Testament. Now, folks, let me give you a key to study in the Bible. When you read in the New Testament a slightly different take on an Old Testament story, pay attention to that because, you see, the New Testament writers were writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So a New Testament writer might say something about an Old Testament story or an Old Testament character. And you turn back to the Old Testament story and you're like, I don't see that there. But again, the Holy Spirit has inspired the New Testament writer to give more knowledge about it. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Hebrews concerning Moses. Because what's the writer of the book of Hebrews say about Moses? Moses, though he was raised in Pharaoh's household and had the best of everything, he chose rather to suffer with his people than to enjoy all of the passing pleasures and wealth of Egypt. That's why I say Moses was just like Daniel and his three friends would later on be in the Babylonian kingdom. The New Testament points out Moses did not lose his Hebrew identity nor his faith. Now folks, that's remarkable when you think about it. And it speaks volumes to us. Because some people today act like what? They act like you've got to go along to get along. Have you ever heard that saying? And what do they do? They constantly are willing to compromise their faith. But the life of Moses and the life of Daniel says to us, you don't have to compromise your faith. And in fact... God will bless you by taking a stand and being found faithful. Yes, you might be persecuted. Yes, you might be laughed at and mocked. And yes, even worse might happen to you. But God will bless you. Would you rather end up with the applause of men or the applause of God? Well, the next question is a bit different. Did Moses do the right thing by killing the Egyptian? I'm assuming that he did not do the right thing. After all, it was still murder. At the same time, the Bible never condemns Moses for doing what he did. In fact, in many ways, the scripture is silent on the subject. But I am assuming that Moses delayed things and he paid a consequence in that regard. Because now what has Moses become? He's become a fugitive on the run. This is something you're going to have to wrestle with. God used this time on the run, though, to equip Moses to be a shepherd. You know, for me, it's more a case where God works in us and through us in spite of ourselves. God brings victory out of defeat. God brings good out of even sin Although Paul, the Apostle Paul, is very clear in the book of Romans that this is not to be used as an excuse to go out and sin more. Yes, God brings good out of sin, but that's not an excuse to sin more. And folks, we also see a continuing storyline from the book of Genesis, don't we? All the people that we've seen God use in the book of Genesis were deeply flawed individuals. That's something that we need to keep in mind as we deal with people. There are no perfect people in the room. There's only been one of those, and that was who? Jesus. And he went to the cross and died for your sin. It also sets Jesus apart in a, in a pretty special way, doesn't it? He's the only one who's not flawed out of all of humanity. And so I think this fact does two things. First of all, it gives more honor and glory to Jesus Christ. I want you to remember Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, remember what they were doing? They were searching for somebody who would be worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of he who sat on the throne. That would be God. And what did they do? They made a search in heaven among all the angels... Could one be found who was worthy? No. I mean, there's Gabriel and Michael, but were they worthy? No. There was a search on earth among all men. Was anybody worthy? No. There was a search under the earth. In other words, those who had died. Could anybody be found worthy? No. And so what's John begin to do? John begins to weep. And all of a sudden, John is told, don't weep. Look the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy to go and take the scroll. Only Jesus is worthy. Only Jesus is not flawed. And so that's the first thing this does. Secondly, it tells me that we need to treat people With grace and mercy. Because again, we're fellow sinners saved by grace. Jim? Uh,
1: It just hit me, you know, as many times as I've read this passage and everything, how did people know, and it just hit me, the person being beaten didn't die that we know of. Scripture sounded on that he survived, and the word got out that
0: way. Right. Yeah, word word spread somehow to Pharaoh, and then he wanted to kill Moses.
1: It may have been. Remember that, and he realized who Moses was. Yeah. And that's why those two Hebrews whacking at each other later on. Yeah. They know the deal. he. And how are you uh, so hot that you're able to rule over us and everything? Yeah. But the main thing was you know, just little.
0: Sure. You know, that's probably what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because he might have viewed Moses. He probably did view Moses as maybe more Egyptian than Hebrew. And yeah. he, even though this guy was beating me, he was a fellow Hebrew. And here's the guy in the Pharaoh's court that killed him. So mm-hmm. anyway.
1: Sure. It was that point that started Moses off on the trage- trajectory sure. that he got on. Sure. And how it led on and on as things do in life. Right. Many other decisions and other things and how Moses became the great leader of Israel. Yeah. And yeah. then
0: interesting. God works in mysterious ways sometimes. But anyway, knowing that in the Bible we see all these flawed characters and how flawed Moses was. Number one, gives more honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And then number two, like I said, it teaches us we need to have grace towards people. Because we're flawed too, right? You know, just today in SBC News, I was reading a piece by Ronnie Floyd, who is our president. Now, if you're not that familiar with Southern Baptist life, we've, we essentially have two presidents. We have one, oftentimes it's a pastor, who's elected every year. And he can serve two years max. The other president is also the CEO. He can serve for decades. Um, Ronnie Floyd is the president slash CEO. And uh, he had a piece today in the news talking about social media and how with social media today... We're seeing something to a degree we've never seen before. People will go online and absolutely barbecue others, even fellow believers. And they, they get away with it. They might even be saying things that are lies and very mean-spirited. Folks, that's not right. Not right at all. We need to treat people and speak of people with grace, don't we? Because guess what? You need grace and I need grace. Right? Again, we read the Bible and we see we're flawed. Even characters in the Bible like Jacob or Abraham or Joseph or Moses flogged. And so we need to treat people with grace. Again, God used all these individuals we've been studying in spite of themselves. One more thing I want to say about Moses here before I move on. Notice how with the fellow Hebrew servant, um, Moses encountered where, where, the, where the Egyptian was beating him I, I said Hebrew a while ago but the Egyptian where, the, the fight and how Moses intervened and then you see about these shepherd girls Jethro's daughters Ruel his name as he's known here in both of these cases, what do we see Moses doing? Here you see
1: him going from being the of Egypt to: being a servant.
0: Yes, and, and how so, specifically? Period, them out, exactly. intervening, intervening. Moses had had people intervene in his life. Here we see Moses intervening. What does this tell us about Moses? He was a man of compassion. He was a man of compassion. He had a very good quality about him. Here's these shepherd girls and the other shepherds are running them off, bullying them. And he drives these shepherds off and he feeds the flocks of these girls. He's got very good qualities about him that speak very highly of an individual. Now thirdly and lastly, I want you to see that change is in the air. Look at verses 23 and following. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because of their slavery. went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with, with Abraham With Isaac and with Jacob, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You've you've got to love the way that chapter 2 closes. Because we switch back away from Moses in Midian to checking in again on the Hebrews in Egypt. And what do we notice? Things have not gotten any better for them. And then we're told what? Pharaoh dies. The Pharaoh who was in charge and had been seeking to kill Moses, he dies. Death is a great equalizer among men. We all die. Now we don't all go to the same place after death, but we all die. Death is an equalizer. Here's this powerful Pharaoh and he's dead. The Hebrews cry out to God again. God hears them. Why does God hear them? Because God remembers His covenant. His covenant that He made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is faithful even when we're not. Verse 26 says that God knew that it was time to act. Now, actually, most English translations supply an object. I'm reading from the NIV tonight. It says God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. But in the Hebrew, there's no object. It just says God looked down on the people of Israel and he understood. And then you go immediately into chapter 3, and it says, and Moses. So chapter 2 closes by saying, God saw, God understood, and Moses. What are we being told? What are we being told there? Yes, and we're being told change is in the air. God saw and understood and Moses. Change is in the air. In other words, what's been going on among the Hebrews is not going to be this way for very much longer. Well, some lessons I want to give you tonight. Lesson number one, human life is special, not simply to be discarded. Human life is special, not to simply be discarded. Number two, God is at work long before we see it. God is at work long before we see it. Number three, God's plan takes patience on our part. Delay does not mean denial. God's plan takes patience on our part. Delay does not mean denial. And then number four, God cares about the suffering of His people. God cares about the suffering of His people. Amen. Amen to that. Okay. Any other thoughts before our prayer time? Yes? How old was, was he when he killed the Egyptian? And how old was Moses when he. Uh, 40 and 80, respectively. hmm. When he killed the Egyptian, beating the Hebrew, he killed the Egyptian, fled. And was in Midian for 40 years. And then at age 80, God, the the burning bush, and God sent him back to Egypt. Yep. Anything else? Yes, because of what he says in chapters 3 and 4, when he keeps making excuses that he doesn't want to go. One of the excuses, God, I've never been an eloquent man, and I'm still not. I stutter, and I've I've been that way, and I still am. And so that's when God um, appoints Aaron, says Aaron will be your mouthpiece. And what I tell you, you tell Aaron, and Aaron will speak. Yep. God's got to work around every which way. <laughs> yep. As I say, God God choose, you know, if God chose only the smartest, the strongest, the most powerful, what would everybody say? They're doing it on their own. Doing it on their own. But when God chooses people, like whom he chooses, everybody stands back and says, what a great God he is. Yep. I like what Adrian Rogers used to say. I've told you this before. Uh, He'd say, how many in the room? Who was uh, voted most likely to succeed? Raise your hand. Who was voted... uh, Best looking or homecoming queen, uh, who was at the top of your class? Who was the star athlete? And as people would raise their hand, he'd say, "Well, I've got good news for you. God can use you too." <laughs> but God's normal pattern is choosing the foolish things of the world to confound the wise.